You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging deep into stories of food, race, radical love, and healing social justice. Today's guest is Amelia Sherwood. Amelia's a mother, a breastfeeding advocate for African-American women, and a dedicated proponent of Montessori education in urban communities. Currently, Amelia serves as the Family Partnership Coordinator at Elm City Montessori, a new independent local public charter school in the city of New Haven, Connecticut. Amelia's passion for equity in education has led her to get involved in national organizing for Montessorians for Social Justice and to help found a national Montessorians of Color network. Amelia is also a food activist for the first food, breast milk. This is an issue that is near and dear to my heart, so much so that I made sure when I served on the New Haven Food Policy Council and we drafted the first ever food action plan for the city that supporting breastfeeding was included as one of the strategies for improving the health of our community. At the time, more than five years ago, I was hoping for someone just like Amelia to come along and start a visual campaign about breastfeeding. So I was so excited when I started to see photos of her and see her and other friends out in public spaces breastfeeding their children. There are enormous health benefits for both babies and mothers when they're able to breastfeed for some period of time. One of the many barriers to breastfeeding that our society has for mothers is stigma and perception. Amelia's initiative, Be Brave Breastfeed, is an online and in-person campaign to help people, especially black women, see other black women breastfeeding their children, to start to put a dent in the stigma and perception that can prevent women from nursing their own babies. As I observe Amelia's work and passions both for her family, Montessori education, and her community, I see the thread that runs through it being a passion for nurturing children and the importance of nurturing black children. I invited her to speak on why these things are so important to her, and as an educator, a mother, and a black woman, what she sees as possibilities for creating equity and vibrancy in education and life for all children. Hi, Amelia. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm awesome. So thanks for welcoming me into your home this Absolutely. Morning. You're more than welcome to come anytime. Thanks. I'm excited <laughs> to talk with you. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what motivates you to do the work that you do both in your private and public professional life. Yeah. So I remember when I was very young that anytime I saw someone struggling on the street, I would have to like stop my mom and tell her, look, we have to go get this person some food. Do we have an apple in the car? What can we do in the immediate to help people? And I think that just has been my driving force. It has always been in me. Specifically now that I have children, it's it's, you know, education, breastfeeding, um, nurturing has always been in me um, now that I have these two little boys mm. to raise. Yeah. Wow. When you said that, I remember this exactly how I was when I was a kid. Like mm -hmm. I just every single person I saw, I wanted to help them. It was like this visceral. Yeah experience of in your body yeah feeling it in your body like wow like this is hurting me as much as it's hurting them yeah so you have these two little boys how old are they yes one is almost two and the other one is three 
And what are their names again? Shiloh and Nesta. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the first ways that I became aware of you in my community was seeing these really beautiful pictures of you breastfeeding mm-hmm. your children in public. Yes. And I'm curious if you could explain why you felt that was important to put put those images out into the yes. world. Yes. So I felt that it was extremely vital to have beautiful pictures of black women breastfeeding because when I first had Nesta, my first child, I didn't have I didn't have that. There were no places where I saw black people in general like you know, thinking that breastfeeding was okay, it's a a good thing. Um, And when I got pregnant with Nesta, it was a lot. Um, I had a lot of postpartum, um, but I also was really empowered still. And then when I had my second child, it was my driving force. I'm like, I'm not going to give up. He is just weaning now at two. And um, it's really important for me to have, for other people to have a visual and for my community to feel like they can come to me. As soon as those pictures went up, there were so many black women and just women in general that came to me and said, look, I need help. What can I do? Are there support systems out there for me? So it was it was extremely important for me to also just capture it for myself too, to look and see that I did that and I did that for my children. Mm-hmm. And it's just a... It's really, really a beautiful thing, and I'm so happy that I uh, accomplished my two-year mark, which I really wanted to do. Yeah, that's great. I also nursed both of my kids till Mm -hmm. two, and Mm -hmm. I felt that was really important. But So what was it about breastfeeding that felt important to you? Like, lots of people use formula, Mm -hmm. lots of people breastfeed just for, like, a few months. Yeah. Why did it feel important to you to breastfeed and to do it for so long? So my model for Be Brave Breastfeed, which is a project I started when Shiloh um, came into this world, is you are enough for your children. The first time around, I didn't think that I was enough. I was just like, there's nothing in there. What's wrong with me? And nobody told me that it got it gets better. You know, mm-hmm. like the, after the eight week mark, like it gets better. There is, you know, there is something around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was just important to do it uh, solely because I am enough. I am enough for my children. And there's just so much industry around it. Like the first time I got pregnant, like formula right at the doorstep. Like, like what right is in that? The hospital, like, right the in the hospital. But even before that, right. I felt like, like, does the universe know that I'm pregnant? And like, why is like all of these you know, products coming to me about so infamil. And yes, like literally on my doorstep. Literally. Probably because of you got on some mailing list from <laughs> going somewhere, going, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really powerful. Like, I hear when you're saying, I am enough for my children. It's mm-hmm. not just, I have enough milk to feed right, my children. Right. It goes way deeper than it that. It does. Yeah. Like, historically, it goes it goes so much deeper than that. Like, black women were wet nursing white children for a long time. And I don't know if that's something that we need to get back into and getting into our roots are reclaiming what our bodies mean to us. So... Mm-hmm get back into you mean not wet nursing but not wet yeah. nursing <laughs> but getting back into knowing that we are enough for our own children right you know yeah yeah and I think that some of that what you're speaking to with like the formula on the doorstep is that mm-hmm. 
pregnancy, like everything else in America, has been commodified yeah, and turned into an absolutely. industry. And so this idea that you need stuff, mm-hmm. that you need like bottles and formula yeah. and a diaper bag and like all these things. And I find with a lot of women that they feel like they, when they pump or when they use formula, they can measure mm-hmm. how much milk they're giving their children. But when their children are breastfeeding, they can't measure it. Yes. And so there's this feeling of, of like, is it enough? Am I, is my kid okay? Am mm-hmm. I feeding them enough? And some people go to a bottle because they can see I gave this many ounces mm-hmm. of milk to my baby. And, yeah. um, and I think you're also speaking to this piece around creating a community of people who let each other know sometimes it works right away. Absolutely. And sometimes you have to work at it until mm-hmm. it feels easy, you right. know, and that we don't have that story that we tell each other in our community, whether it's in the black women community or a multiracial community or Mm -hmm. just other, you know, American environments, we've sort of lost that conversation about how does breastfeeding work and intergenerational and kind of across women support around the different ways it works and, and it takes a little time to learn it. And so it sounds like some of what you're doing is trying to build some community around. Yes. And um, just being a support system for, for, for the community and knowing that it's okay. And I felt so resilient. Um, the first time I was on the green with Shiloh, I was breastfeeding at a Bernie rally Mm. and there were just so many people that were coming up to me. And I just, I, at that time I just felt so important to just it, it felt so important to be breastfeeding in public to show people that black women do breastfeed in public and this is uh, this is something that happens you right. know like this and and we're not going to um be closed minded about it anymore yeah and, and you go and com- see this baby that's <laughs> that's right well i think changing the visibility is the yeah. key thing yeah. because the story is like white women mm-hmm. nurse their babies mm-hmm. in public, not yeah. black women. And mm-hmm. in fact, like in America, at least right. not in other places. But, um, and so I think normalizing it and making like, this is good. This yes. is positive. Yes. This is the most important thing to changing people's ideas mm-hmm. around it. So were people coming up to you saying positive things? Yes. They were like, wow, that's so beautiful. I breastfed my child for this long. That's and great. it was empowering to see all of these younger black women around me who were just smiling at me. And they're like, can I take a picture of you? And it was just so empowering. It was, it was empowering not only for me, but to, to see the, the joy in their eyes to look like, wow, like she is, uh, you know, like she is a bad little mama jama, you know, (laughs) basically like doing it. And to see, to see them, the younger women uh, was really important because maybe one day they'll be breastfeeding because of that moment. Yeah. That's beautiful. And that's an important piece. I think of like education is that person to person kind of what we do in our community. So since we're on the topic of, food breastfeeding Mm -hmm. being the first food and then kind of what evolved from there I know that you have recently had sort of a change of thinking around what you're eating and feeding your family and and have started to shift to eating a vegan diet and I'm wondering if you can talk about what motivated that what's that about for you well there were there were numerous reasons why I want to be a vegan but um, mainly because I feel like the food industry, specifically meat and dairy, uh, they hold a lot of institutional racism within their um, organizations. And to be a vegan is to be resilient and to resist those forms of um, 
just oppressive systems that do not serve uh, people of color specifically, but all people, right? Like we need to be thinking about where our food is coming from and is that going to affect not only me, but my children and in, in their future. And um, I just had like a little bit of a bagel and some um, vegan cream cheese. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Because <laughs> it's not and like on the post it says it's better than cream cheese. But I have to get back into I have to get into a mentality of like, this is what it's going to be like, it's not mm-hmm. going to be cream cheese. Um, and I'm okay with that. You yeah. know, and I think for me being a vegan is is you feel a lot better you you're you know yourself um and i feel a lot better giving that back to my family Mm -hmm. you know yesterday i did my best to make sure that there were vegan you know options and i made it really explicit even though there was some chicken and and beef there at the end um i really wanted to build a community of people coming together with not just meat you yeah. know, and coming together and eating and laughing with with vegetables and right. fruits. Right. For a party you had in your backyard. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So when you say institutionalized racism in the meat and dairy industry, what are you thinking about specifically? I'm thinking about um, I'm on this tip of I just saw what the health and it was it was mind blowing about what certain areas specifically in North Carolina are going through and what the industry does to pinpoint neighborhoods of people of color, Latinx and black neighborhoods. And they place these um, meat factories into these neighborhoods and basically just they they leave them with a a horrible quality of health of a quality of air is is not well in those areas anymore most of those people have asthma um thinking about my own children you know uh my my children both experienced a lot of respiratory problems and that's all related to what we put in our bodies so yeah there's a ton of environmental impact from from both of those industries and they typically are affecting lower income communities absolutely many areas also tend to be communities of color but not not in all but um yeah it's really serious and i think one of the things in that movie and in many movies about the food system and Mm -hmm. about food justice is paying attention to the same way as breastfeeding the role of food industries in what we're being told to eat and how things are marketed so um if you look at like the food pyramid or my plate or things mm-hmm. like that it's telling us to eat dairy yep. but most people are allergic to dairy most people yes. around the world are allergic to dairy yes. like dairy is cow milk mm-hmm. for baby cows yep. now i put cream in my coffee so i'm mm-hmm. not like totally vegan in any way but yeah. but i try to limit the amount of um, meat products both for my health and mm-hmm. for the sake of the animals and the yeah. people who work in those environments and the environment so um but if we think about like this is this is food made for baby cows, not for people. Right, right. <laughs> changes right. what you think about it, but that the industries um, are telling us to eat these things. Mm-hmm. It's not actually in the best interest of people. It's in the best interest of the all. industries making money. Sure and so it's I all think about it's, money. Yeah, we have all to look at, at all that when we're um, thinking about what we eat and why we're being told to eat these things. Right. Absolutely. So, um, Another really huge part of your life is that you work in a school yes. and you have worked in Montessori schools mm-hmm. for a number of years. 
And I'm wondering if you could talk about why Montessori? Like what, what do you connect with around the Montessori philosophy? So I think Montessori is the truest form, the modern true, like the modern day truest form of liberating young children. Um, for them to have so much freedom with limits and discipline, of course, um, is so beautiful. You are not going to just be doing reading at this time and math at this time and being taught to be robots. Um, you're really thinking for yourself. You're making a plan for yourself in the morning time. What would you like to do today? It's very child-centered, very child-focused. And I love that as aspect of Montessori. One of my favorite aspects of Montessori is preparing the environment. Mm. You know, just, and, and the accountability of the adults. There is no bad child. It is the accountab accountability of the adults and what happens in that environment. What do we need to take out of the environment? What do we need to put in the environment? So it has a lot of accountability on what we as as adults in children's lives do for them and mm -hmm. what we can do to foster that curiosity and um, and love for learning, not just having to go to school, but to love to learn. Mm. Yeah. Can you give an example when you say the environment, you mean the classroom mm -hmm. space? Like yes. what, say you have a kid who maybe has a ton of energy at school and mm -hmm. is, has a hard time focusing, what would you do in the to create an environment that supports that child right so in a three to six year old classroom there are plenty of ways for them to do all sorts of stuff specifically in practical life where they are washing tables so they get that big gross motor kind of um movement going and then also they are taught to um they're taught to pour big mm -hmm. objects together so they feel the weight of different things and they they're moving their body in that way too and then in the classroom they're taught to understand where other people are going so it's really they're really intentional about not stepping on people's stuff um but it takes a lot of preparation for the classroom environment for that to happen but there's all sorts of ways for them and it's it's embedded in Montessori mm -hmm. you know people the some of the children in three to six year old classrooms um, they walk a line with a whole bunch of heavy stuff or light stuff or are putting it on their heads learning how to balance so it's really really and it's really rooted in Montessori to make sure that children are um, exploring and then uh, the truest of Montessori classroom environments, you would have access to being outside all the time. So it would be an indoor outdoor feel all the time mm -hmm. where the children can explore outside and they can be out there all day, all day if they have a really structured plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like also some of the integration of for, especially for the younger kids of the physical movement right, and interactivity right, there, not right. just being told to sit in a chair. Absolutely. That helps them to be engaged and pay attention yes. and learn. Yes. Yeah. What about for the older kids, for older? So for the older kids, we serve six to nine-year-olds. Um, 
for the older kids, they're always going downstairs and helping. You know, if they if they're getting a little restless, can you go downstairs and help Sassafras class? Can you so that's the go younger, down, the yep, younger kids' mm-hmm. classrooms? Can you go downstairs and um, go and get this for me? They're always doing projects, always doing different jobs mm-hmm. in the school. Okay, and um, one of the challenges that I hear sometimes about Montessori is that it's you know it's very self directed learning yes. as you're talking about. But when kids struggle sometimes with something like reading, for right, example, right. maybe they are not going to choose to do reading because it feels hard to them right, and right. something else like some other more interactive thing feels more exciting to them. Maybe they gravitate more towards math or kind of hands-on, yeah. you know, science kind of things. Um, how do you deal with that in Montessori so that kids aren't getting left behind right. who have challenges? Absolutely, um, we get this question all the time. It's really, it's really an important one. Um, so what we do is, or we try to do at our school, um, we try to figure out what the child's interests are, and kind of foster that you know interest in whatever they want to do so if they're really interested in dinosaurs okay so let's go and find a book about dinosaurs right and read it and read it together and we've been really intentional this year about putting more reading into our days so you will see the office manager reading to children you will see parents coming and reading to children you will see me in the hallway reading to children so it's kind of creating this environment of, of, of learning um, and, and literacy, not only through the children, but through all of the adults that are in their lives. So when you're talking about preparing the environment, it's mm-hmm. also about making a lot of choices available Absolutely. that you know the child needs to choose, right, but they're right. still choosing and being self-directed, yes. but you're yes. putting choices in front of them that are all kind of in line with what they, yes. you know, that they're needing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, your job at the school is that you're a parent connector. I am. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, most Montessori schools are, have historically in America been in more white communities, um, often in more wealthy white communities, Mm -hmm. middle class or upper middle class white communities. And the two Montessori schools that you've worked in are both in the city of New Haven. And one was a preschool that served primarily black children Mm -hmm. and, and kids of color. And then the other one is a elementary school. Um, that is a new parent started right. uh, charter school, um, public charter school, local charter school, um, and has a, a multiracial kid community all coming from the city of New Haven. Yes. So there's a number of kids of color, a number of white kids. Um, and maybe for many of the families in New Haven, Montessori is sort of a new thing. They've probably yeah. heard the word Montessori mm-hmm. around because we now have two Montessori schools here, but right. they don't actually know what it means. And so what... What is your role as a parent coordinator in in helping people to understand Montessori? Right. So I am the family partnership coordinator, and that piece of partnership is so important. Um, The first year that I was at Elm City Montessori School, uh, that was the startup year. I was in the classroom, and um, they really felt that there was a need to have a bridge between families and school. And that's when my job was created to fill that and, and kind of have that bridge. So I'm always connecting, always building relationships. And it's ex- and extremely important in Montessori spaces to have that because Montessori is so new. It's been around forever, but it's very new to um new to a lot of our families Mm -hmm. and the way that I do it is to 
talk and have conversations and let people know like you're not going to have homework and that might be scary but it's really a beautiful time for you and your children to be outdoors with one another if they want to have piano lessons they can have that because they're not bogged down to lesson to to having to do homework all the time when they get home and um, your children might come with different you know a, a left shoe on the right shoe right shoe on the left foot um, and that's okay you know they're exploring and it's not that we are um not doing our job but we want them to feel okay maybe my maybe i need to change my shoe to the other foot so i can you know walk a little bit better or for the whatever. little kids that they're right, sort of the learning that kids, on their yeah. own as opposed to um, being told it. yes and and being independent is is so important and that can be hard um for 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 communities and specifically communities of color like this is my baby i want my baby you know no like he needs to come in he can walk by himself and where and he's going to be okay but it's really just building that trust mm-hmm. it really is like when you have trust with families that's the most important the most important thing to do in, yeah. in schools right now building that trust with folks yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about most of the models that I see in cities mm-hmm. and in communities of color for kind of education interventions, right. school type things that are more tend to use a more militant approach. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to get these kids in line, like we're going to create an enriching, yes. enriching environment. Like they usually have like more challenging academics, yeah. higher expectations. And the approach tends to be like, kids are going to learn to sit in their chair, follow rules. We're going to be strict. We're not going right. to let kids get out of line and we're going to have high expectations and we're going to push kids to meet those expectations. And that tends more, you know, that's a more kind of average way that, that that urban communities whether Mm -hmm. it's white people putting those in Mm -hmm. or or black people putting those in but that tends to be the approach that a lot of people think about for for um trying to improve education uh for kids of color in cities and maybe not only for kids of color but that tends to be approach people choose and i'm wondering like do you hear that from parents like that they montessori isn't that montessori is a very different approach yeah and and it's not as understood in our culture about kind of giving individual agency and kind of having this openness about learning. And I think that can be really scary for people because they don't know, should I trust this? Is this going to work? Because they're much more used to a more like militant, rigid Mm -hmm. way of, of teaching and learning. And they, they sort of trust that that works, even though that doesn't always work at all for, for a lot of kids. So how do you deal with that where people come in with this very often, this very different Gotcha. Idea. Well, we're being really intentional about making sure everybody that comes in our doors understands what our program is about because we have had a lot of people thinking that we're Elm City Prep because of our name, mm-hmm. you know? So we really have to give people resources. Like right now I'm in the process of emailing uh, new parents saying these are some resources, um, some Montessori resources that you can look up. Here is a, a pamphlet about us, but really, really taking the time to individually sit down with folks is really important too. Um, even our our older our parents that have been with us since the beginning, mm-hmm. like still giving them parent education about um, what's going on in the classroom. So they're not like, what are all of these materials? What does this mean? You know, so that they can physically um, 
touch them and feel them and understand what they're for um, is really important too. So that that parent education piece in Montessori is is yeah. huge. It's yeah. really really huge. Yeah, but it's great because yeah. then parents are more on board and understanding what you're right, doing. So right, right. It's wonderful. And then they know what they signed up for. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. I'm sort of curious about another thing, which is that um, I have witnessed a lot of implicit bias in schools, mm. meaning people treating one child different than another child, right. either because of their race, like right. treating black child, black children more harshly, talking in a more aggressive or angry tone right. than mm-hmm. against a white towards a white child, uh, or also with gender, like often reprimanding boys more mm-hmm. than girls. Um, and also sometimes see it in terms of kind of economic status or if someone right. thinks that a child is from a more educated or wealthier family versus a poor family. And so um, these are the, you know, implicit bias, I think, is a word we throw around. But but what it sort of means is like, I mean, you know this, but I'm saying for people mm-hmm. listening is like the assumptions that we hold, the kind of unconscious right. um, ideas, frameworks, assumptions we hold about people, about yeah. children, about people or a people um, that influence us when we're making a split second decision or when right. we're under stress and we don't necessarily have the time to think about, oh, I need to make sure I'm treating all these kids equally. Right. In the moment when you're stressed, what are you doing? How are you acting? And how is that coming out? And I have witnessed that in many schools and mm-hmm. try to speak up about that as much as possible. And it's it's definitely a pervasive problem in education right. as well as other environments. And I'm wondering how in the Montessori context and um, how do you witness that as someone who, as a mother and also mm-hmm. as someone who works mm-hmm. in schools, how do you deal with that? So just doing the work for yourself. Um, we have our anti-bias, anti-racist learning project at our school that we are going to be spearheading this year. And one of the main focuses is doing a lot of individual work, um, and understanding where those biases are coming from and what is the root to them. Um, so I think teacher education is extremely important when it comes to implicit bias because they, it's something that we don't know, right? It's something that's in us that we don't see, feel, we may feel it, but we, we don't know that it's there until it's, it comes right up right out of our mouth or it's a snark that we do to a, a one specific child so doing the individual work is going is is so important mm-hmm. to understand what your biases are and to to really understand where where the root of those biases are coming mm-hmm. from yeah and i mean i know one dynamic is that we have a lot more white teachers teaching kids mm-hmm. of color mm-hmm. how how do you see that but it's it it's also so interesting because there was a study through Yale I believe that talked about implicit bias and in the study it dis- it discovered that like black teachers yes. are putting a lot of pressure on their black students right. um and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing um well, but, implicit bias doesn't right, like we all right, live in a racist right. society. We mm-hmm, all learn it. I've mm-hmm. actually witnessed a lot of black teachers yeah. doing the same kinds of things right. as I've witnessed white teachers doing. It's that Although, internalized 
racial racism and internalized racial oppression that oppress oppressive oppressiveness that we put on our own children sometimes and don't even know you know it's like we're 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 looking at them more than the other other children in the room because you want them to succeed right yeah Yeah. so the motivation is maybe a little different you're putting like a higher you know you're putting them you're putting them in this box of of you have to succeed because I want you to live basically, you know? And right. we shouldn't have to do that. Right. We shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. So I'm totally I'm totally on board with what you're saying and mm-hmm. and often speak to that myself and know that your school and many other schools right. are trying to hire more teachers of color. Yes. Um it's very important and to us. Yeah, why? I mean, given that like implicit bias goes across color lines. Right. Why do you think it's important to have more teachers of color in schools teaching children of color and teaching white children? Because it's important for white children to have models of adult educators who are people of color as well. And Montessori spaces is extremely important. I know for public spaces too and traditional settings as well, but Montessori spaces do not have a lot of people of color and it was amazing to see i just came back from houston texas from the montessori and of color retreat that was followed by the montessori for social justice conference mm. and there was 49 percent of people of color which is amazing um to see because there are a lot of of specifically white women in Montessori and it's it's not a bad thing but we want to make it accessible to other folks so that they can bring it back to their communities mm-hmm. yeah and so it was 49 percent at the Montessori 40, for social justice conference yes. was 49 percent people yes of color. yeah so that was really sort exciting of a movement for us. growing up. yeah there is and there's all these different pathways that are are being created right now mm-hmm. that allows a lot of access for Montessori training Right. So you're helping to build these networks. I know you've helped to start this Montessorian of color mm-hmm. cohort of people around the country. Yeah. And how is that helping you in feeding your work that you're doing? It is so exciting. Um, it makes me I'm I I'm a Montessorian at, at heart, but I don't have my training. And I feel like this is the first time where I do have a lot of access to it. There's been so many people that said I, we, we're going to get you trained this year. We're going to do this. And it's it's building that support system that is that that I think every teacher needs, but specifically people of color in Montessori spaces, because you don't know what kind of trainer you're going to have. You, you don't know what kind of things that you're going to be up against when you get into your training. Mm-hmm. A lot of people come into Montessori and are just like, Montessori is Bible, this is, this is it, and um, this is how we're going to teach Montessori and this isn't Montessori. But if Montessori was here today, she would be saying that like, I was a scientist and things change, you Mm -hmm. know, and children change, the times are changing. So we have to adapt to what our children need in these times. And do you feel Um, that the broader Montessori community is being welcoming to these conversations around Montessori for social justice and around Montessori? Some some are. Educators of color. Some will put the blanket of um, we are, we celebrate, you know, all cultures and we we talk about the global citizen a lot. But there are a lot of Montessori spaces out there that don't understand that like we need to be talking about it in a deeper way Mm -hmm. there is institutional racism 
in in Montessori spaces because of the people that have adapted it mm-hmm. um, are adopted it I should say um, so we need to look at that and examine it and understand that it exists and how are we going to be dismantling it throughout the years to make sure that all children will have access to this beautiful um, way of educating mm-hmm. children yeah and it's not just Montessori that's in yeah, education across sure, the board sure, I mean, right in our exactly. society definitely yeah absolutely so I'm curious as a as a mom of mm-hmm. two little boys who yes. are both black how are you feeling yeah in this in this time and I'm not just yeah. saying this because of Trump because mm-hmm. it, it it didn't start with Trump like it this sure has been going it. on for hundreds it of sure years mm-hmm. <laughs> so but just in this time in your life and, right. and your boys are little still yeah. so you know they're they're still with you and with adults all the time and but how are you how are you feeling as a mother I'm, I feel like I'm liberating myself from not being so fearful mm-hmm. anymore. Um, my older son, he's petrified of the police. Mm-hmm. And one day I was liberated and I saw a beautiful black man, you know, with his officer uniform on, police officer. And I said, you need to have a conversation with my son because he's very scared of you guys. And I need you to tell him that you are here to protect and to serve the community. And he got on his knee and he looked at him and he had the most beautiful conversation with him. And I will never forget that. You know what I'm saying? Like, because he didn't have to do it. You know, he he looked like he was busy. He didn't have to do it. But I needed I needed him to feel like he was safe. Mm-hmm. And he gave him that validation of feeling safe in that moment. And it is scary. It is scary to be to be a mother of color, um, especially with all the things that are happening in Bridgeport right now. Um and not youth not having access to summer jobs, you know, that's like a death sentence for a lot of communities right now. Um, so, yeah. Um, but these tears right now are just like joy. They're, they're pure joy because I am empowering myself and the community to have these conversations and to support one another. Mm. And that's the most important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel this struggle between both trying to teach your children and maybe as they get a little older, right. but just teach your children about how to be safe in interacting with police right. because they can be a threat, yeah. especially yeah. to black boys. Yeah. And other I people. mean, in my school, and like it's all day, all day scared. in my school. I'm just like, just, I'm just trying, you know, and it's hard to find that balance of like conforming and letting children be free, right? Like it's that balance of like, okay, you can do this here. This is a safe space. But when you get out into the world, know that you need to act a certain way. And I, I don't like to say it like that, but cold switching, you have to be able to know when you can really be free and that's like so hard for me to say but that's that's the real that's the realest thing as as a mother as an educator um as a as a parent coordinator letting children be free with limits right now is um is hard to say and um 
but it has to happen. They need to understand that there's boundaries and there's, if, you know, like in this area, in this space, in this classroom, you can do this. But in the outside world, you need to know when to shut it off, Mm -hmm. which is so hard to say. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When you're at school and a child, a black child is reprimanded or gets in trouble or something with a a teacher, a teacher says, like, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you kind of feel that same sense of urgency about kind of protecting this child and yeah um it's more than just what's going on in the classroom it's also about what they're learning and how they take that out into the world every day every day I feel that I feel the urgency I feel the accountability you know um every day I feel that yeah Yeah. Mm. thank you for opening your heart and talking with me absolutely thank you so much yeah Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I just want to say how beautiful the Liberation Day, because I don't celebrate 4th of July, but the Liberation Day that I had yesterday was so beautiful. We live right across the street from Jocelyn Square, and I never celebrated... um, the 4th of July per se here. I was all, always at the beach or something, but it was so beautiful to see so many people on that little park, you know, mm-hmm. right in the middle of like where East Rock lies and, and, and Fairhaven starts to see all of those people having such a good time and to see the freeness, like the, the, the carefree, latinx black community just like in their their most beautiful form of Mm -hmm. letting their children run around and them laughing and and drinking having a good time with their family um was so beautiful to see Mm. and um i think i said this to you before but it was a dream that i thought i never had to see that community just to see my community thriving like i Mm. literally like as soon as i was in the park i was like I love my city. Mm. I love my city. I love everything about it. The, the, the toughness of it, the love of it, the, 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 the difference that it feels like when you come into New Haven. I love it mm. with all its, its baggage and with all its stuff still. I still love New Haven and I'm so glad I'm a part of this community mm. now. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Those moments of just pure joy. Yes, pure, pure joy. It sounds like, I mean, I know that you're holding a lot, like as, yeah. as this very kind of positive, thoughtful right. woman and right. black woman and mother, you're holding a lot, yeah. you know? And I see that when you're, when you get down into your heart and your mm-hmm. tears come out, like you are kind of holding the futures of all these children the the school your children your community and so i think i'm happy that you have created environments and and have public spaces where you feel like you can be free definitely because i think that holding all that stuff can be really heavy and and hard and it's important to have the joy and freeness of life it sure is i'm glad you got that for a minute i hope you get a lot more minutes yes definitely (laughs) yeah thank you for sharing all of your your thoughts and insights i really appreciate it yes thank you for having me 
There's so much more to discuss on the topic of equity in schools. This conversation just scratches the surface. The feeling I hear from many black and brown people that they have to teach children to be free with limits, as Amelia states, is often a response to the long history of white supremacy in our country, which created slavery, Jim Crow laws, the mass incarceration of black and brown peoples, and also the psychological effects of living in a society where your life is not valued on par with that of white people's lives. The desire to teach the limits of where it's safe for black children to be free comes from a desire for them to live and not be harmed or killed by all the components of white supremacy that still exist in our society. When you hear the term white supremacy, you might immediately conjure images of Nazis or the Ku Klux Klan. That's generally what we think of in this country when we use that term. But you might notice that I'm using the term a little bit differently. I've been intentionally using the term white supremacy instead of just talking about racism. Because really, the roots of racism and the problems that exist in our country because of it have to do with power and about white power. And white supremacy actually addresses that better than using the term racism. I think that hearing these stories about people's personal experiences living in our society and how white supremacy, racism, power affects them is a good first step in understanding what's going on and what kind of solutions we can build together. If you have a story you'd like to tell, or know about a story you think I should dig into, please shoot me an email through the contact page on thetableunderground.com or message me through our Facebook page. And to pick up on another theme of this show, if you're trying to eat healthier and take care of your body as well as your soul, check out our website for recipes and other inspiring stories. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest info. And if you're listening by podcast, please post a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. It helps other people find the show too. Thanks for listening to The Table Underground. I'm your host, Tegan Engel. Check you next time.